Welcome to A Higher Branch, a source of practical and powerful information for busy people dedicated to boosting their personal health and professional performance. I'm your host, Sam McCall. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of A Higher Branch. Well, what a challenging time we live in at the moment. And it is clear that emotional resilience is such an important quality. And my next guest knows a lot about emotional resilience. And one of my favorite things that she says is that we don't wait for adversity to strike before we go looking for the tool set to deal with these challenges. We need to be working on our emotional resilience continuously throughout life. So when we are faced with challenges, we know how to deal with them at that point in time without having to, you know, um, go through a series of yo-yo emotions as most of us are going through at the moment. So my next guest is someone that I met at Upgrade Your Life. She had an impact on me. I had so many conversations with so many incredible people, but she was certainly uh, one of the most memorable. And the more I spoke with her, the more I I thought I have to have uh, this lady on our podcast. She's the author of an incredible book called How to Be Resilient. She's also an international uh, speaker, and she's worked with large organizations such as Telstra, CSIRO, and Holden. And she's been featured on the ABC. I've read about her on Financial Review and The Australian. And mainly she was featured on those programs for her insights on resilience in the workplace, something that I'm incredibly passionate about because I employ so many staff. So what makes Stacey's approach to resilience different? Because she isn't an academic or a psychologist, but she has created a framework of resilience based on her own life experience of overcoming the adversity of quadriplegia at the sensitive age of only 12 years. She's an incredible woman, and I was lucky enough to not only meet with her, but have her say yes to appearing on our podcast. So on that note, Stacey, welcome not only to this podcast, but to our high branch community. It is fabulous to be here and um, Upgrade Your Life definitely was a, you know, a really great experience for me and it was a great way to start the year and um, and just to, the, the, converse, the conversations and the connections that came from that have been really pivotal in getting this year started really well. Absolutely. Well, for me, I had um, uh, many highlights at the event, but definitely up there for me, one of my highlights was meeting yourself and that's why I wanted to meet you. Uh, I want to read your book. But more importantly, I want uh, you to share uh, your knowledge and your wisdom with our community, especially during these times where adversity is now rampant, not so much uh, personally, but it's become a collective fear. I'm talking about this coronavirus. (laughs) And uh, you know, when we're deal, dealing with fear that's rampant like that, it is an adversity, isn't it? But uh, look, for those of for those people who have not met you, um, do you mind sharing your story of what happened when you were only 12 years of age? Yeah. So back at 12, um, yeah, it was a pivotal point in my life, and it was, uh, I guess, the the biggest 
thing that happened at that point. Um, I was calling off in a relative's backyard swimming pool with my younger brother who was 10 um, and a couple of other boys who were around the same age. And it was somewhere I'd been before. It was somewhere I was quite familiar with. Um, But being the only girl and being that bit bit older than them, I was like, meh, don't want anything to do with them. So what I did every time I was there is I used to just climb up on the edge of the pool and just keep diving in. And it was just an above ground pool. So it definitely was not a diving pool, right. but it was something that I always did. Yes. And so on this day I was doing that and I was just diving in over and over again and I was getting yelled at to stop, but, you know, being 12 and bulletproof and invincible, I was like not listening to that um, and I just kept doing that. And then this one particular time I ended up standing on the edge of the pool and thinking I felt like I was splashing too much as I was diving in. Right. So I stood there for a moment and I just thought, well, how can I dive without splashing so much? And so I, I thought that if I tried to keep my legs straighter and hold my feet together, in theory, I thought that would make a nice clean entry into the water. So I took a deep breath and did exactly that. And it felt like any other dive that I'd done before until I went to try and swim up to the surface and I realised I couldn't move. So I was stuck at the bottom of the pool holding my breath. Um, I didn't feel any pain, didn't feel like anything had gone wrong, but I just could not move. So I desperately was trying to get the attention of my brother, which I couldn't do. Um, so I held my breath for as long as I could. So you remember this vividly? Absolutely vividly, every yeah. single moment of that. And, you know, I don't know how long it was, but mm. obviously it felt like an eternity. Um, and it was just sheer panic and terror of trying to – just thinking, like, I, I can only hold my breath for so long. And eventually I, I couldn't hold it any longer. Right. And I just had right. to give in. And as I breathed in and – my lungs filled with water, I blacked out. And, you know, eventually my brother um, realised that I wasn't joking and he pulled me out. And it was only recently I actually had lunch with one of the other guys that was in the pool with me that day, just before Christmas. I haven't seen him for 20, it was 29 years ago. I hadn't seen him since that day. Wow. And it was a really interesting conversation to have with him about his memories of the day. And so he said he remembers so much that, that they all thought I was just joking and that was like splashing at me. Yes. Um, yes. And then, you know, once they realised something was wrong, they pulled me out. And so I got taken to the local hospital and, you know, at the third hospital late that night in intensive care, I ended up having a doctor come and tell me that I'd actually broken my neck and drowned and I'd never walk again. Pretty much I felt like my life was over in that moment. You know, it was the end of the life that as, as I knew it and planned it. And at that, at that age, you already knew what you wanted to do when you were older yeah what was that yeah I was a really I guess I was pretty rare in the fact that before I even started primary school I knew what I wanted to do and all I wanted to do was be a vet so all through my my schooling those primary school age schooling everything was focused on that and at 12 I was at the end of year six I went to school here in New South Wales right um, and I'd actually passed the entrance exams and I got a first round offer to go to Hurlston Agricultural which is a selective agricultural school so of course that was a huge tick on that next step you know to being a vet um, but, but aside from that I was an athlete as well so that's I, right that's right yeah, yeah I played softball I was a pitcher in the softball team I was one of the first two girls to ever play soccer for my school and I was a rep runner every distance from the 100 meters to the cross country up until that point, had you had any other defining moments in your life? And uh, I call them defining moments because you recall at Upgrade Your Life, we talked about defining moments. Yeah, with Guy Winch. Yeah, Guy yeah. Winch, uh, David Goggins talked mm-hmm. about it. I talked about my two defining moments. So obviously th- that is a huge defining moment for someone, right? 
did you how did you deal with that adversity at the time being only 12 what is it easier or harder at that age in hindsight I, as a t- once I was in my teens I definitely thought I had it easier compared yeah. to most as I had a stint in hospital in my late teens and it was there that I became more aware of the other people that were there and I was seeing particularly I think the, the people that I thought probably had it a hell of a lot worse than I did was the guys in their 30s that had families that were tradies with their own mm. businesses that had mortgages and all of those levels of responsibility Whereas the only thing I had was focus on me at that point in time. So I really feel that it was probably the, you know, it's never a good time to have something like this happen. But I felt if anything was going to happen, it was probably a really good time for that to happen. Because I've heard you say that that was the best thing that ever happened to you. At the beginning, as I said earlier, it was, I felt like my life was over because I was like, okay, I can't be a vet. I can't. I can't walk, let alone run, to play all the sports I used to do. And my identity at that point was athlete and that I was going to be a vet. So you lost your identity. I lost my identity. And so, and being 12, I was just about to go into high school. Like that point in time is so, there's so much stuff that happens. Identity is so huge. We're always trying to, at that point, we're trying to find our way. We're trying to figure out where we fit in, why we're here, um, you know, the dynamics we have with other people. And so I had that you know, as well as this. And so I ended up spending seven months in hospital. So I missed the first six months of high school. I couldn't go to that selective agricultural high school. Um, it wasn't accessible. I needed support. So I ended up getting shipped off to a, you know, a school, nowhere near where I lived. I didn't know a single soul and I rocked up there in the middle of the year. So that was challenging in itself. Um, so the first pre in those first few years, probably the first even three to five, I would have given anything to have either turned back the clock and not taken that dive or to have not been there at all. Because a lot of people would go there, wouldn't they? <clears throat> sure. What if, what if I didn't? Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, that rumination that Dr. Guy Winch talks about, did you, uh, how long did you ruminate for? And you did um, uh, confess to me that you went through some depression and you became suicidal at one stage. When did that happen and what yeah. led to it at the time? Yeah, look, my, my way of <coughs> coping um, through those years... Was and I'm sorry if I'm bringing these emotions back out again. Oh, no, it's real. And it was something that I really didn't share with anybody until into my 30s, until I wrote my book. Like, I was so... I kept all of it to myself, yes. um, so which wasn't healthy. Um, but, yeah, I spent a lot of my teenage years drunk and stoned. By doing that, I was yeah. trying to seek these moments of artificial happiness. Yes. And yes. what that led to in between was getting deeper and darker into the despair and the anxiety and the self-loathing in between. Yes, yes. Um, and it did get to a point where I didn't want to be here at all. And, you know, in hindsight, what I realised is that, you know, physically I drowned once – but emotionally, I was drowning every single day yeah, for, yeah, you know, yeah. most of those years. So it was definitely a, you know, a super challenging time. And as I said, it was one of those things that I completely kept it to myself. So was your turnaround a gradual thing or was there another defining moment where you just said enough? There was two things that I sort of saw during that time. The first one was what stopped me from getting stoned all the time. I was at the point where I was actually getting stoned at school. Yep. I had a couple of moments where I was so stoned I couldn't speak at school. 
and I had friends cover for me and all that yeah. sort of stuff. And I just got to the point where I'm like, this is ridiculous. I was getting foggier and foggier and I'm like, this is, it's got to stop. So that was so when I was about 16, so year 10. So pull the pin on that. Um, and then a little bit later in high school, I had my real rock bottom moment where I found myself al- alone at home and just so, so desperate for you know, just the, the pain and the self-loathing and that just to go. And I found myself with, you know, a bottle of prescription medication and a bottle of water. And the only thing that stopped me in mm. that moment from doing that was the fear that someone would find me before I was gone and I would end up worse than where I was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. totally get that. When you say somebody, is that your par- you're talking about your parents, siblings? Oh, yeah, anyone, you know, that was that yeah. was the fear. And in, if I had had a guarantee at that time that that wouldn't have happened, I wouldn't be here today. So I'm really glad that that, you know, that, that sort of, that, that sort of voice had sort of come and did that. Um, Where do you think that voice came from? Is that yeah. your inner essence fighting? Yeah, yeah. and I guess so in, in that sense. And it was yeah. that what really what it did for me, though, was it scared the life. It's, well, mm. it nearly scared the life out of me. Um, but it was one mm. of those things that, you know, it scared me so much because you never ever think that you will find yourself personally in a situation where you're contemplating that. You know, there's a lot of judgment. Yes. You know, from yeah. society around, um, you know, suicidal, suicidal thoughts and things like that. And people have a judgment of like, how can anything be so bad that you would contemplate that? And so finding myself in that situation, that was the that was the the real shift to go. Look, it's this is this proverbial fork in the road. You've either got to get over, get on with it, you know, you give up or get on with it. Absolutely, and I I don't think a lot of people realise that how fine our life rests in the balance and that we can all get there very, very quickly, you know, through a series of events, one event, two events. And I recently did a course on safe driving and because um, I'm one of those people who loses their licence every now and then. I think the government said, enough, you have to go do a course. And I begrudgingly turned up to this course. I think I told the guys uh, recently this story, but it keeps coming back to me because uh, listening to your story reminds me of one of the stories that I you know, watched during this course where this person had the ordinary life, then his brother had a car accident and died. And then his other brother became depressed and committed suicide. And it's funny how our life can just shift in an instant. And we need to be prepared. We need to... Uh, uh, most people rush to being resilient when they need to. But your message is you need to prepare yourself for life. You need to be always in a state of practicing resilience and knowing how to deal with adversity. And really, that's what I want to talk to you about because I think uh, really a lot of young people need to hear this as well. I think resilience is the number one skill that we need to be teaching people and young people. You know, not trigonometry, not Shakespeare. There's so much, you know, emphasis on, you know, all these things external to us, but n- not enough about, you know, uh, the internal, what's going on in our internal world. And we should never put ourselves in a position where our whole world can be rocked from one event. We've got to be able to take the body blows that life throws at us. So um, I want to talk to talk to you about that. And um, one of the one of the things you say is gratitude is the key to success and and i love that if you remember that 
I talked about gratitude a lot at Upgrade Your Life because it's the, it's the perfect antidote to unhappiness. Yeah, completely. And, and even depression, right? So what can you tell us about the way you practice gratitude and the way you teach it? Yeah, and, and gratitude for me, it was, that was the key point going back that enabled me to really get on with it. And, and, and part of that was shifting the way that I looked at the accident. And I actually started to look at it and I looked at it with gratitude. And I was grateful that I had that accident and how it changed my life. So how did you reframe it then? Exactly like that is I just reframed it, that I was grateful that I had the accident and I was grateful for how it changed my life. So do you want to just talk, uh, just take us through the self-talk that goes on on how to reframe something from yeah. uh, an apparent tragedy to it's the best thing? <laughs> yeah, and, and it basically it's a choice. And a lot of people will turn around and go, it's not that simple. And I'm like, actually it is. It is actually really, really simple. doesn't mean it's easy, but it was just simple. And so it was just was actually doing that. And again, most people go, how the hell does ending up a quadriplegic and needing a wheelchair for the rest of your life positive? But I can say with absolute certainty that I've had the most incredible experiences since then, and especially since I reframed the way I looked at it, that I would have never had if my life had have taken a different path. Um, but, yeah, gratitude is is a lot of the time we hear about you know, writing down the things you are grateful for. Yes. And sometimes yeah. I find that can be a little bit challenging for people. So for me, I use mantras and that's what I've ended up doing. Um, and so it started out, my, my gratitude process um, has evolved over the years and it just used to start off with, is this just like I'm grateful for, you know, where I am um, and what I have. Yes. Um, and that has now ended up being that, Every night, you know, each night when I close my eyes, when I go to bed, I repeat, you know, my gratitude mantra and, and also if I find myself in a rut during the day. And so, you know, the, usually it's just the first line of it, which is thank you for the opportunity to be who I am, where I am, with what I have at this moment in time. And that gets you grounded in the moment right now. I love that. Let's break that down. Yeah. There's quite a few elements there. There's four elements. Yeah. So it's grateful for who I am yes, and everything about who you are. Then there's the where I am and there's the what you have at this moment in time. And I think that's really the key point is it's at this moment in time. Because if we are completely in the moment, we can't feel anxious. Yes. Because anxiety is the thought about what's coming ahead. Yes, okay. I don't believe totally we can feel depressed in the moment either because depression's more about what's happened in the past. That's right, it's regret. Yeah. yeah. Yep. So if we can ground ourselves in the moment in any given, at any given time, then it eliminates those two things. Very powerful. So depression lives in the past, yeah, anxiety lives, lives in, in the, the future. future. And there's a lot of anxiety going on in the world today about what the future could bring for people's health. So how would you reframe that? Yeah, I still think gratitude is super important in this moment because, again, so much of what's happening is about what might happen. And I, I read recently, again, because people are getting so fixated on the media and the news at the moment, right. and that's feeding the fear. And one of the questions that came up is it's like, how, do you, how can you tell if something's news? Something is news if it's reporting on something that has happened. Yes. If it's speculating or may happen, it is merely an opinion. So people need to look at the lens of that when they're Absolutely. actually looking it's at, a is very this good news? Yeah. yeah. And even at any time, I find 
is is that if something is really feels overwhelming and challenging it is just coming back to that I'm grateful I may not feel it right now but even just by the message we tell ourselves we can shift that Um, so it brings it back into the moment Um, and then there's a few other lines that I I use with the gratitude as well Um, you know it's it's I'm grateful for all of the experiences I've had the lessons I've learned and the people I've met because that's one of the things that I always find gratitude is so much about the journey we've had even if it has not been what we wanted we've got people in our lives that would not have been there again had our life taken the path that we had designed absolutely now who was who is the person that you've met on that journey that has had the most impact on your life Oh, wow, there's been quite a few actually, but I think the one that has made the biggest difference has been in more recent times, um, and that was Lane Beachley. You know, she's been an amazing, ah, yes, yes. an amazing person, and I came to her through her foundation, um, which she used to, which unfortunately wound up the foundation now. Um, but for many, many years, she ended up was 500 women that over the years that she supported financially and with mentoring and it was all about women that were already doing great things to help them yes reach higher levels so having someone like her who has an incredible journey herself to show belief in what I'm doing and what I was doing um you know that was that was super powerful um and then that brought me into an amazing community and things like that as well so you know she's been somebody that's been really good and again I was someone that I admired from afar and then being able to then have a personal connection um, with her was amazing. So, so what was the, what is the one thing that she teaches that had the biggest impact on yourself and others? What was what was that uh, what was that quality that she had or that message rather? Yeah, I think the big thing for me was again just that having that belief in yourself and being okay to actually stand out because I think. What I've experienced, I think, yeah, in Australia, tall poppy syndrome is is such a huge challenge, um, and I think for women it's even more challenging. So to actually then be able to put your hand up and celebrate your success publicly, that was a big one because mm. I know I, I you know grew up in Western Sydney. It was one of those things that it was like, don't stand out, don't say that you're good at anything. People will think you're a big head. Um, there's always that cutting down. So we grew up minimizing ourselves and our success so coming into her community it was a matter of going you got to stand out you got to shine you know the foundation was called aim for the stars so it was about doing that and and really owning owning your stuff and being proud of it i love that why do you think that that element is still there in australian society i think in the world actually (laughs) it's actually way more prevalent in australia um Yeah. yeah it's from People I've spoken to, I think England has got a little bit of it as well. Um, yes. But I, and I guess there's probably a link considering that we're colonised by the British. Well, it is a regal quality to, you know, stay modest, under the radar. And uh, I mean, Meg Markle's, <laughs> Meghan Markle's uh, experiencing that at the moment. Because in royalty, you're supposed to just, you know, stay quiet and humble and not speak out. But that goes against a lot of what we're uh, here from you know, motivational gurus or inspirational people who say, you know, shine brightly. And especially women, I think, are being told to stand up and, uh, you know, assert themselves. But the moment they do, they get chopped down. So it's a bit of a a tug of war going on with uh, two mixed messages. It's really hard. And also, too, a lot of the challenges with, Mm. with that with women is it's other women, unfortunately, that 
that are the ones that are probably the worst at cutting each other down. And that was something that through Lane's foundation, it was mm. probably the first solely woman-focused organisation I'd been a part of that everyone was genuinely had each other's backs. It was the best mutual admiration society um, and everyone did. Everyone was inspired by each other. No one was threatened no one saw each other as competition. Everyone was genuinely backing each other. And even now, years later, like I've got the most amazing friendships and relationships from that group of people. And I know that I could pick up the phone to any one of them now or another five years down the track. And I know that they would still have my back. That's awesome. Yeah. So you found your tribe. <laughs> I found my tribe. And then obviously I found my, I found my, my new tribe as far as the, you know, the higher branch community as well, yeah. um, you know, with coming into Upgrade Your Life, which so I, was looking, I was looking for, you know, that tribe and that, you know, community of like-minded people. So I'm very grateful that I've found that now. Yeah, I'm grateful for it too. There was a definite click in the room, wasn't there, between everyone? 100%. Uh, yeah. yeah. I read somewhere that you haven't missed journaling in four years. Almost five now. Almost five. Yeah. Okay. Not, not most of a single day. Why is it important for building resilience and dealing with adversity? And why do you keep doing it? Why? What's the What's the payoff for you? For someone that's listening that might have, you know, a, a, a job, demanding job, a partner, two kids, mortgages, school fees. Uh, I know what they're thinking. It's like I don't have time to journal, right? <laughs> Now, I, I journal maybe two or three minutes in the morning, sometimes five minutes. Now, if I've had a shitty day and I need to process a lot of things, I might actually process a lot of feelings and it might take me 20 minutes of journaling. But the main thing is to do it every day. Yeah. So what, yeah, what, what drives you to do it, uh, has driven you to do it every day for the last five years? Yeah, it's interesting because it's like I only, only got back in, I got into journaling it's probably about six years ago. Um, and I hadn't journaled since I was in primary school. Now, what was really interesting about my primary school journaling is when I was in hospital for those seven months, the thing that I was worried about more than what I was going through was my parents finding my journal at home. <laughs> As a teenager, you would, yeah. <laughs> and what, what almost breaks my heart now when I think about it is I still remember the first time I went home after being in hospital, the first thing I did was I went and found that journal, I ripped it into tiny little pieces and threw it in the bin. Why? Why did you do that? I was so fearful about if anyone read it. To know your feelings. Yeah. Where I was up, where, where I was at, what I was up to, yeah. like all that sort of stuff. It was, yeah. And I did not journal again until my mid-30s. Like that was... And so then I got back into journaling and I just started with... Um, keeping it simple because again I think this is as you touched on mm. so many people have got busy lives and they're thinking well this is just one more thing um, but the way I came to journaling was to just go look I'm going to keep it really simple and it was about the consistency was the key so I started with a commitment to do it 90 days no exception and what I did was it was either it was two things I either just answered the question what was the best thing that happened today and sometimes to prompt that I would start with a cue of today I had the opportunity to Right, and finish right. the sentence and so my commitment was one sentence if it went beyond that that was fine but that was my commitment and I had nights where I actually realized I'd got it got to bed mm. and I'd realized I hadn't journaled so I actually got back out of bed and for me that's not easy yes. I got back out of bed and then did the journal I do it electronically my evening journals yes um, so I did that and then we'd get back into bed and I did that 
multiple times. So that first stint, I did 15 months-ish without a break of one day. Um, and that was super powerful. Then I dropped the ball a little bit. I probably did it once a week. And then once I was doing some book launch stuff and, and um, you know, journaling came up again and I thought, okay, I need to live and breathe exactly what I'm talking about. Yes. And so, yeah, I haven't missed a day in that. Um, and sometimes for me it was about processing. Sometimes it was just about capturing. Um, but as you mentioned too, when you've really got some emotional stuff going on, that journal can get pretty you know, can get pretty lengthy. I've had nights yeah. where I've written 2,000, 2,500 words because I've been processing. Um, but is that a form of therapy, self-therapy? Oh, yeah. yeah. I, I, I kind of a little bit joking, jokingly say sometimes, but it's true that journaling has probably saved me tens of thousands of dollars in therapy over the years. Yeah. That's how I process. It's, Absolutely. And yeah, it's capturing that. that stuff. Yeah. Um, and what I love too about the, 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 the program that I use is after you've journaled for a, a period of time, it's got a feature called the looking glass. So if you enable that, I get an email every night that says on this day, one, two, three, four, five, six years ago, this is what you wrote. Ah, yeah. Which is like really that. fascinating because yeah. it's like, it, it usually elicits one of two things. It either elicits, wow, look how far I've come. Or, bloody hell, I had all the answers then and I still haven't done anything with it. <laughs> so, it's, but it's super powerful. And it's, um, I yeah. just think, it's just a commitment to one sentence every day. Um, but yeah, it does help to process. It helps you to, to capture, to reflect, to even just pose questions. Sometimes I just put questions in there. But I also, I always do it before I go to bed because then that clears my head. So, I'm not laying there when I'm going to sleep thinking or processing. I've already done that processing before I go to bed. I love that because... The important thing about that is that your conscious mind doesn't always have the answers, but by writing the question down, your subconscious goes to work on it at night. Because yep. I've found that has happened to me a few times. Uh, so I'll write the question, wake up in the morning with the answer. Yeah. yeah. Or at three o'clock in the morning in the bathroom. I find that often I'll be three o'clock in the morning going to the bathroom, I'll come back into my room, I'll grab my phone, I'll grab Evernote, and I've written a few hundred words, which has either been an outline for you know, a blog or a series of questions or just like, wow, this is, it just seems to, you get these downloads in the middle yes, of the night. Yes. So I just get them out of my head and then I go back to sleep. So I never, I never want to lay down with something on my mind. Yep. I really like that. So I'm not the only person that does that, wakes up at three. <laughs> oh, the best ideas come through at 3am in the bathroom. <laughs> I always get the nudge from my wife saying, go back to sleep. <laughs> Um, it's like that. Now, one of the quotes you have is focus on what and why and the how will take care of itself. Mm. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, I think so. How does the how take care of itself? Does it just appear? Or? Well, it's kind of linked to what we just talked about, about sometimes posing those questions and letting yeah. the subconscious go to work. Um, but, yeah, a lot of the time is, is that people don't do things because they, they don't know how. Yes. Um, and, you know, that, that, that happens. Um, so, yeah, I think when we get stuck in the we – when we get stuck on the how, yeah. then that's the time to go back and go, well, what is it? Yes. And why do you want it? And I think it's those things. Obviously, Simon Sinek's talked about the – so much about the, you know, the power of, you know, start with why. I, I haven't come across uh, someone with one single message – <laughs> talk so much about it and write so much about it. I know. It. It's, well, it's just, he's done well, hasn't yeah, he? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but 
I love the way he, he's probably one of the best speakers actually I've ever come across, Simon Sinek, and he does it with so much passion and intensity that it just sticks with you. So yeah. keep on doing what you're doing, yes. Simon. So what is your what, your current what and why? Yeah. What's My, your biggest? Yeah. Why? Look, I go back to the why. Yeah. The, the why is so powerful now. For me, I feel a deep moral responsibility to keep doing what I'm doing um, because I know that especially in the in the world today there's a lot of people that are struggling a lot of people that you know may not may not may not may not really pursue what deep down they want to do because right. of fear or all of those things um, but the, the real thing the, the real the reality is there is it's all about getting people to really tap into who they are and get past all their excuses of why not and uh, then be yeah. able to focus on you know doing what they really want um, and just knowing that through sharing my story and being able to share a few key messages it's anytime I speak I'm always thinking about that one person that's in the room that that I know that if I don't show up completely present and at my best that whatever that thing that is going on in their world is not going to change but if I yeah. show up a hundred percent with me you know with complete connection with that person with that room yes then I know that I can help shift something in their life that could change the entire trajectory yeah. of their life I love that so I feel so yeah. responsible now to do that and also that mm -hmm. it it's not about me now because I never wanted to do this because I was so worried about what people would think about me. Yes. And I realized it wasn't about me. I had a mentor that said, look, it's not about you, it's about them. And if you don't share your story, you're being selfish. And once I started doing that and I just got to see all these people that say, well, because you said that, I did this. And the emails and the messages I get three, four, five years later that people said, you helped me do this. And that's your big why. That's it, yeah. is to keep doing that. that, is to get people to get out of the, men, you know, the entitlement mentality, just to you know, really focus on themselves and the, the, the impact they can have. And we all have influence. And I think this is a big thing. People don't realise that no matter who you are, you've got influence of some description. And helping yes. them to realise that they've got that and, and to use it. For me, one of the things I always think, of, I always believe the best is yet to come. So, you know, there's always, there always needs to be something pulling us into the future. Yeah. In a, I, in a positive like way. In I a like positive that, way. Yeah. So that's one of the things you keep telling yourself is the best is yet to come. Always. I, I always believe that. Um, and I've had amazing experiences so far. But that, having that perception the best is yet to come helps keep you going every single day. Uh, yeah, I really like that. One of the things that you do really well with business leaders is that... Um, you teach them how to have difficult conversations with people. So tell us about that because um, I employ quite a few staff and sometimes you need to have these difficult conversations. So what's the best way of doing that? Yeah, I find the best way of doing that is mm. to not just wait until there's a difficult conversation that needs to be had to have a conversation at all. Because so often, especially when you know, everything's so fast-paced, there's a tendency to have your conversations usually at times where oh, it might be an appraisal thing going on and that sort of stuff. Yep, yep. So mm -hmm. I encourage all leaders and anyone that's working with people in general is to have frequent informal conversations with their staff all the time, at least once a week, to have an informal conversation. And it can be just a few questions. It can be just like, you know, 
you know, hey, how are you feeling at the moment? Um, what are you working on? Uh, what's, what, what challenges are you having at the moment? How can I best support you? And so if you have those conversations all the time, you build trust. Yeah. And then when it does come to having those challenging conversations, generally if you're having those conversations frequently, it doesn't get to the point where you have to have a really challenging conversation. That's absolutely true, yeah. Yeah, because yeah. those little things are yeah. going to be you'll, – you'll get a, an indicator that something's happening through there. And because you've got that rapport and that trust, then you can start to have those conversations early rather than if you are, a, you know, a person that's, you know, very removed yes. from their lives, then it is very difficult to then go and have those conversations. Obviously, they still need to be had. Yes. Um, but – I think that's the best way to do it. And it also just creates that trust, that sense of community. You get to know people. You get to know what motivates and inspires them as well. And then you can be a cheerleader for them and you can you get to know what their motivators are so then you know how to work with those people better as well. I think there, there are some businesses uh, and business leaders and senior executives who don't like to get too close to people. And... Um, it's, I think it's a bit of a shame because, uh, you know, a lot of people say business is not personal. It's, don't take it personal. It's just business. For me, business is personal. And I think the reason why we've been successful, because I, did, I do get to know my leadership team, my people uh, very well, uh, my clients. And because ultimately we're humans and we don't just leave our humanity at the door in business. And uh, the people that I know that have customers and clients uh, who are the best at their game are the ones that have a personal relationship with their clients, whether they're lawyers, you know, mortgage brokers, uh, real estate agents. And so I think we need to move away from that old, you know, um, principle of, oh, you know, don't get too close, don't get too close. If you don't, you're always going to have a business that's numb. Hmm. It's just ticking along. It's textbook stuff. So I, I really love what you just said then. Mm. And uh, you don't actually, you never have to have a difficult conversation if you're always checking in and connecting with people from the heart. Yeah. Uh, that makes yeah. them feel, that they, they feel valued and seen. Yeah. And because that's one of the things that comes up a lot in business is why people leave places is because they don't, they, they don't feel that they're valued or that their work is meaningful or things like that. So if you can yeah. always be yep. through those conversations, helping them to connect with the, the importance they have to the overall, then yes. that, help, that really helps people to actually, yes. and especially when times are tough, it helps people to go, well, look, um, you know, we'll keep pushing through this because there's a greater, there's a greater thing at play here. Um, and a lot of it, it's all about being proactive. And again, that's why my approach to resilience is proactive. It's all about building these skills so that when something happens, you're not completely blindsided by it. Because unfortunately, particularly in a business context, I've come across so many situations where they have an approach to resilience where it's just become synonymous with coping yes. and it is reactive and it's like that's, that's exactly what I was talking about when we first opened yeah yeah, yeah. and it's not it's not a great approach yeah. um, because again we can't just sit back and wait for stuff to happen yes we need to be ready for it and then also look at it with optimism and looking at all these things all this adversity and this change as looking at it with, through the lens of opportunity and possibility rather than disaster and doom and gloom. Absolutely. Love that. So what brought you to Upgrade Your Life? Was it uh, Goggins? Um, actually, I came across Upgrade Your Life through Jim Quick. 
Oh, it was, okay. It was through yep. Jim. So yeah, yeah. I did one of his programs online many, many years ago. Yeah. Um, so I followed Jim's social media. Um, and yeah, sort of into late last year, I, I really felt that you know, I work on my own a lot and yeah. you know you feel a bit isolated. So for me, it was about looking for a community, looking for a tribe, looking for, um, you know, looking for where I could spend time with like-minded people. And so I decided probably about October, it was just after I came back from the US, yes. um, I decided that I was going to look for a couple of, I thought, really high quality multi-day events that, you know, it wasn't so much about the speakers, it was more about the community. And obviously then I came and got completely blown away by the speakers as well. Yeah. Um, yeah. But yeah, that was what brought me there. Um, the reason why I say that is because a lot of the things you say have parallels to what David Goggins says uh, and, and so a lot of stuff in your book as well yeah, yeah and when I was listening to David's book I was mm. like oh we're, we're so aligned and that was the conversation I had with David yes um and it was just our whole approach and, and and even to the point where you know both of us you know we're not academics or psychologists we haven't researched all this stuff we've just lived mm. it and so my approach is, is it's backed by life rather than backed by science. And I shared that with David and, you know, we, we, we definitely bonded over that. And, um, and, you know, having David, you know, toughest man in the world, label me a badass. I was like, yes, I'll wear yes. that with pride. Yeah, absolutely. So can I just have a look at your book there? Absolutely. Um, there we go. So the book is simply called? How to be resilient. How exactly be what it resilient. says on the can. <laughs> and I love how-to books because for me, it's about uh, key takeaways. So... Where can uh, people get a copy of this book? Any of your local bookstores, Amazon, online ones. Um, yeah, so um, if you like the physical books, otherwise you can get the audio and the ebook um, from howtoberesilient.com. And is it your voice on the audio? It is. Oh, wonderful. That's good. Yes. I have this thing. I really need to hear the author's voice. <laughs> yeah, that's really, really good. I'm, I haven't actually read the whole book. I've read snippets from what I've seen online. So thank you for bringing this in. I hope this is for me. It, it absolutely is for you. <laughs> and um, yeah, so thank you very much for coming on, um, on our High Branch podcast. I'm hoping uh, you'll be a regular contributor. I would absolutely love to. That's awesome. All right, guys. Well, that's all from us this week at a High Branch. Live consciously, my friends. 